we are so glad that you're here. Um, we are kicking our time off together with a, with a I want to give you a question. Can I ask you a question? It's going to be on the screen. How is your prayer life? How is your prayer life? Do you have a real desire to pray? Do you desire a better prayer life than you currently have? Is there any passion in your praying? Do you want more passion in your praying? Is there any power in your prayers? What if there could be more power? Would you want more? Welcome to week one of our brand new series, The Basics of a Praying Church. This series is going to complement our midweek book series that we kicked off this past Wednesday night entitled A Praying Church. And for the next five weeks, we are going to do a deep dive into our prayer lives. And our goal in these weeks to come is to learn how to pray bigger, better, and more spiritually emboldened prayers together. The key word in all of that is together, because statistics say that corporate praying is a dying discipline within the modern church, and we won't pretend that Journey is immune from that statistics. So for the next five weeks, we're going to plead with God together to resuscitate corporate prayer in the American church, and we're asking him to start it right here at Journey. We can't just talk about prayer. We must plan it, and we must be intentional about allowing it to breathe in our services. In fact, I want to put this prayer on the screen. I want this to be the prayer for us during the series. Lord, change the look and feel of our gatherings by helping us become more conscious of your character and more dependent on your presence and power in and through us. And I signed your name, Journey Church. The purpose of this sermon series is to answer the basics, the who, what, when, where, and why of praying. Hear me. I really do believe that if we commit to God in this process, that God will commit to us. I believe that if we show up weekly and we engage with God in pursuit of prayer, that he will honor our efforts and he will bless our prayer lives individually and corporately. And if he does that... Our prayer lives will be better five weeks from today. And this is not manipulation. This is a biblical principle. If we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. The church needs prayer warriors. Now, that's a term that was certainly used in years past. I grew up, there was a lot of prayer warriors in the church, so it might not be a common term these days. Uh, I had the distinct privilege, by the way, of growing up with parents that were both prayer warriors. In fact, my dad, who, a little chatterbox over there this morning, uh, probably prays more in a day than I do in a week. And if you just talk to anybody that, that had my dad as a deacon at the old country church in Freytown, the first thing they're going to say is he's a, he's a praying man. Every night at the dinner table, he reminds all the kids, I'm praying for you. When we think of a prayer warrior, we might think of images like this. I want, yeah. When you think of a prayer warrior, you think of someone that, that might be rough and tough or loud and boisterous, but this next image is probably more likely what a prayer warrior looks like. We desperately need 
God to raise up new prayer warriors to stand in the gap of those that have prayed before us. I am who I am today because of the prayers of people who loved me and saturated my name in God's presence. My ministry, I believe this church stands on the shoulders of men and women's moms and dads, dear saints that have gone before us preparing the way for the Lord's work to be done in and through us through prayer. And that's what this next generation needs from us. They need men and women, moms and dads that pray. They need a church that prays on the front end of decisions and diseases and demonic oppression rather than on the back end when we've exhausted all other options. Prayer is not only the best option for the church. Prayer is the only option. And if that's true, People should assume as they walk by or drive by our church this morning that among other things happening in this place, we are praying. So with humility, we come before the Lord today as his disciples did in the gospels and we ask Jesus to do for us what they ask him to do for them. And we're gonna pick it up in Luke chapter 11. I was really tempted to share this story from Matthew. But after 18 months of being in Matthew, I thought I'd give you a break. We're going to Luke chapter 11. And I want to pick it up in verse 1. Here's what Luke says. Once Jesus was in a certain place doing what? He was praying. And when he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the food we need. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation. Now, I need to give you a disclaimer, perhaps a warning here. This sermon is a bit convicting, or at least it was for me in writing it. But my prayer is that God will use any conviction that you and I experience as a catalyst for repentance and renewal in our prayer life as he has done so for me even this past week. At first glance of our text in Luke 11, I want us to notice that the disciples only asked Jesus to teach them to pray after they observed him praying. This certainly wouldn't have been the first time they heard Jesus pray, but they did notice something in his praying that maybe was absent in their own prayer attempts. So we applaud the disciples. We applaud their humility and their desire to learn because you would be far-pressed to find another example in any of the Gospels where the disciples specifically, in text, ask Jesus, teach us. There's lots of times they had questions. Why can't we? Why didn't we? But this is about the only one in the Gospels where they say, will you teach us how to pray? Three particular things I want us to notice about this prayer. Two generalizations and then one specific point. Here we go. Number one, notice that the disciples first acknowledge that prayer is necessary. You don't ask someone to teach you to do something unless that something is useful or beneficial to you. And the disciples had watched Jesus pray. And they had heard Jesus pray. They knew if they were going to do what Jesus was asking them to do, it would be necessary for them to learn to pray as Jesus prayed. 
The second thing is notice also that in asking Jesus to teach them to pray, they were not only confessing that prayer is necessary, but also that prayer, at least to them, was unnatural. Necessary, but not natural. We must learn how to pray. We have to be just as intentional about praying as we are about anything else we do, or we simply won't do it, or we won't do it well. Prayer is a constant battle between spirit and flesh. So to be consistent in prayer, we must be consistent in slaying the flesh and walking in the spirit. Does anybody else struggle to pray on a daily basis? Yeah, why? It's not because you're lazy. It's because there is spiritual warfare. Spiritual darkness in high places knows that God moves when God's people pray. And so he's going to do everything he can to distract us from God's word and from praying to the creator of the universe. Notice the third thing, how Jesus teaches his disciples the structure to structure their prayer. He says this, this is how you should pray. Father. Jesus teaches his disciples to start with a person, not the problem. Why? Because our heavenly father is sovereign. Your problem is not. God, help us not become more consumed with the temporary than the sovereign. Jesus starts with the who before the what because who we pray to matters much more than what we pray for. You know, when I'm writing my sermon, I'm pretty bold at home. And I get here and see your faces, and then we have visitors, and I'm like, man, there's parts I probably should leave out this morning. So let me say this with all due respect and no desire at all to disrespect anybody's religious beliefs. That is not my, if, if you are disrespected, it's the spirit, it's not me, okay? But any religion that encourages you to pray to anyone other than God is wrong. We, we don't pray to Mary. We don't pray to Paul. We don't pray to Peter. Why? Because they are not God. And again, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but your Aunt Sally and your Uncle Bob that has gone before you is not watching over you, interceding for you. Your loved ones that have died as believers in Christ are right now worshiping in the presence of the only one worthy of our prayers. And it's not wrong to think otherwise. It's irresponsible. I had a stronger word written. I'm a, no, I, it's stupid. <laughs> and you don't have to take my word. Take it, take Take the word of the saints that some religions pray to. Paul in Acts 14, listen to this, verse 8. While they were at Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came upon a man with crippled feet. And he had been that way from birth, so he had never walked. And he was sitting and listening as Paul preached, looking, this is so amazing, looking straight at him, Paul realized that his faith, 
that he had faith to be healed. I don't know what that, that gaze was like, right? But, but Paul in his preaching goes, oh, man, something big's about ready to happen here. Okay? Here's what he says. So Paul called to him in a loud voice, stand up. And the man jumped to his feet and he started walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, done they shouted in their local dialect, these men are gods in human form. And they decided that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus and that Paul was Hermes, which, uh, since he was the chief speaker, now the temple, listen, now the temple of Zeus was located just outside of town. So the priests of the temple and the crowd, they brought bulls and wreaths and flowers to the town gates. They prepared to offer sacrifices to the apostles. We're going to worship the apostles. We're going to pray to the apostles. Verse 14, but when the apostles heard this, when Barnabas and Paul heard it, they tore their clothing in dismay and they went running towards the people shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We are just human beings. We're just like you. We have come to bring you good news that you should turn from these worthless things. What's the worthless things? Trying to make human beings God. Trying to say, pray to St. Mary. No, she's worshiping. She's not hearing your prayers. She's in the presence of God, worshiping him. Will we pray to St. Paul? No. Show me a verse. There's not. So I wish, I know I had some Jehovah Witnesses knock on my door yesterday. I'm still waiting for the Catholic priest to knock on my door. So I can say, just come in and explain this text to me in Acts. <laughs> how, how, do, how do we get past this where you're still saying to have this forgiven and this forgiven, you need to pray, you need to pay this and pray this and to this person. Like, if they were alive today, they'd be ripping their clothes saying, we're just human, you morons. We're just like you. Stop trying to make us into the status of God, there's only one worthy of our worship. There's only one worthy of our praise. There's only one God. He says, we're trying to turn you from these worthless things and turn you to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it. In other words, there is only one worthy of our prayers. Paul in Romans 11 says this, starting in verse 33. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him. And everything exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. When you pray, pray, Father. I, we, I want you to hear that. It's, it's personal. It's intimate. Don't pray to some cosmic, distant God. You're praying to your heavenly Father. Galatians 4. Listen to Paul here. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent his spirit sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. And this is intimate. Now you are no longer a slave, but you are God's own child, and since you are his child, God has made you his heir. 
When you pray, pray, Father, hallowed be your name, or may your name be kept holy. Because Jesus knew that one of the greatest struggles for believers that are still warring internally with a sin nature would be to hallow the name of God. Hallowed simply means to be to be made holy or greatly honored. And so it brings us back to our big idea this morning. Our view of God will determine our level of worship and willingness to trust and obey him. Empty and powerless prayers are the result, result of us settling for a lesser God than the scriptures reveal to us. And a low view of God will naturally lead us to low expectations from God. So the answer to our prayer problem is not just pray more, but rather it's we need to be reintroduced to the sovereign God revealed to us in the scriptures, the great I am. We've lost the awe of the great I am. I believe a large contributor to the condition of the American church is the lost discipline of hallowing the name of God. So for our benefit, I wanna share three ways really quickly that we can evaluate the significance of this idea in our own lives and in our own church as we determine if, if we are indeed in danger of losing our view of who God really is. Number one, question, are we hallowing God with our words? You see, we, the third commandment that God gives Israel when he's defining the rules of relationship between God and his people, Exodus 27 says this, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. And we're all maybe just thinking, well, that just means I can't use the Lord. I can't. Well, oh, God, you know. Okay, it does mean that, but it means so much more, and I want to unpack it a little. Let me ask this. Is it possible for us to become so familiar with a holy God that we attempt to cling to God's friendship while shunning his lordship? When I see people wearing the t-shirt that says, Jesus is my home, I just want to slap them. Like, you've lost the reverence of, of Jesus. He's God. He's not your homeboy. He's your Lord. You're not going to hang one day. You're going to bow in his presence. And you're going to confess him as Lord. So how about it, Christian? Do we even consider the weightiness of God's name when it rolls off our tongue? As I'm preparing this this week, I'm, I'm convicted. I, and it happened again last night. I prayed a prayer. I started it. I finished it. And I didn't even realize. It's just so natural. I've been praying for 45 years, right? And so I can just, I pray. I don't even have to think about it. And that's dangerous. Because we just roll words off of our tongue. And there's no thought. There's no consideration. There's no weightiness to them. We will speak the name of Jesus in prayer through some Christian cliche or, or, or maybe just through praying and there will be no thought, there will be no self-examination. We, we, we will abuse the, the holy name of God by invoking his will on our own will. Have you ever done that? Oh, it was God's will for me to buy this truck and be in debt for the next seven years of my life. I'm not saying, I'm not saying you shouldn't have bought the truck. Just don't invoke God's will because in a way, that's misusing the name of God. It's blasphemous is what it is. Unless God gives you a verse that says, go buy the truck. You shouldn't be telling people, God told me to buy the truck. 
Here's, here's, here's the convicting part of the sermon for me. When somebody asks you to pray, if they were to ever ask you to pray out loud, would you be more afraid of what the people around you would think? Or would you be more afraid of what God would think of your words? We don't want to pray out loud, not because we're afraid of, of what God might think. We're afraid of what people might think. And I'm just saying, I think we got that backwards. Oh, let's pray, church. But let's make sure we're careful when we go into the presence of God. In Ecclesiastes says this, chapter 5, verse 1. As you enter the house of God, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, it is... It is Notice it doesn't say it is easy to make mindless offerings to God. It says it is evil to make mindless offerings to God. Just going through the motions. Don't make rash promises and don't be hasty in bringing matters before God. After all, God is in heaven and you are not. You're on earth. And I love this last, this is the wisest man that ever lived. Solomon says, so let your words be few. Why? Because less words give us less opportunity to invoke God's name in vain. Might I suggest a principle, maybe a, a discipline we should start practicing, including me, is that when we are called upon to pray, we just take a moment to remember who we are speaking to. The God of the universe that holds the world in his hands. And we should not take that lightly. Number two, are we hallowing God in our worship? If you are a child of God, you are a worshiper of God. And we know this, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so true worship is God-focused, not self-focused. Worship that hallows God's name is not concerned with whether it pleases me, but rather if it pleases him. What if we, had, we attended our worship gatherings with our primary thought being, oh God, I hope you are pleased as a result of us gathering here this morning in your great name. Whether I'm actually pleased, that's, that's secondary. That doesn't really matter. We just want you to be pleased. How many of you had that thought on the way to church this morning? Maybe this just isn't your style of service or your style of music or your style of preaching, but who really cares what we think and what we want? Because this is God's people, and this is God's church, and this is God's day, and this is, this is for God's glory. You say, well, that's easy for you. You're the one picking the songs. Not always. And you're the preacher. I don't, hey, I don't like the preacher sometimes too. He preaches too long. Hey, I've been going to church all my life. I have learned to sing the dumbest songs because it ain't about what I like. I was going to give an example. I'll wait for the second service when it's not online. I've been asked to come and speak at camps, and they ask that I have to speak out of a certain translation, and you think I 
fight that? No. Why? Because it's not about me. If I went in there saying, God's big and he's bigger than your translation, I'll preach whatever I want. You know, I've lost the crowd. And God's not going to be glorified in that moment. So I've learned that if, however they want me to preach, I'll preach. And whatever they want to sing, I'll sing. And I'll worship. Because it's not about me. It's not about us. The question should never be, did we enjoy it? Who cares if we enjoyed it? Who cares what we or anybody else thinks? What did God think? Did God enjoy it? Did God enjoy journeying this morning? Well, okay. <laughs> Somebody speaking on behalf of God. Yeah, that's, that's the question we should be asking. When, when we are asking that question, I think we're getting close to the practice of hallowing the name of God. I want people to leave this place this morning knowing that our agenda was to make much of the name of Jesus and no one else. Not our problems, Jesus. Not our wants and our desires, Jesus. Number three, are we hallowing God in our witness what is our principal motivation in telling others about Jesus? It should be the hallowing and honoring of God's name. It is by proclaiming the gospel that we bring God's name before the nations. So we actually hallow God's name when we seek to display through our actions and declare through our words who Jesus is and what he has done for us and what he is doing in us and what he will continue to do through us. The real objective in evangelism is not that people will be converted but that God is glorified. Okay, listen. It's been a long morning, so I'm going to shut it down because we still got some cool things to do. Um, baptism, and there's going to be other people coming to worship here in a few minutes. Um, but let me just ask, let me end where we started. How's your prayer life? Are you hallowing, honoring the name of of God. Or perhaps is God revealing to you as he has me this week that you've become a little too careless with his name? I want to just be still for a moment and allow the spirit of God to reveal this is just you and God. Perhaps he wants to reveal to you any unholiness disobedient in you, maybe through your words or your worship or your witness. And then I want us to finish with communion and baptism. Father, reveal to us if our words are glorifying to you. God, show us if our worship is fixed on you or another. God, give us a real evaluation of this morning of how our witness is of you.